Hello, and welcome to the Global Insight from Control Risks, the global specialist risk consultancy. I'm Claudine Fry. And I'm Charles Hecker. And this is the podcast where we try to explain what's going on in the world and what it means for business. Against an unprecedented backdrop of political complexity and uncertainty, a phrase that's getting a lot of mileage these days, we know that there are more than 40 federal level elections around the world in 2022. One of them is in Kenya. General elections take place in Kenya on the 9th of August. And given the precedence for elections in this country to be associated with very serious levels of violence, this poll is being closely watched. And Claudine, this much is certain. No matter what happens in the Kenyan elections, the country will have a new president. It was the first election in 2013 under the new constitution when this governance system was set up. So not only are we seeing a presidential poll where we're going to get a new president, but at the local level, a lot of governors are also serving their constitutionally second and final terms. So there is quite a significant, I would say, changing of the guard that is happening at the moment. That's Patricia Rodriguez, a senior analyst for East Africa based in our office in Nairobi. What will influence the way most people vote is, you know, ethnicity and the person that they think will advance the, the interest and the interest of their ethnic group. That's the main determinant of how people will vote. But there's also growing discontent about that kind of system amongst, especially amongst young people who are more and more looking for alternative political leaders. And that's Rose Mamania, an analyst also based in Nairobi. My impression is that the Kenyan electorate is incredibly fragmented and that assembling a winning election campaign is, number one, quite a lot of work. And number two, involves enormous amount of regional, ethnic, political and demographic compromise. How do the Kenyan elections work in that way for people who are coming to this for the first time? Is it hard to win an election in Kenya? So the short answer is Kind of. It is sometimes quite difficult to get all the different numbers together. And as you mentioned, there is a lot of ethnic considerations to take into play. What is, I suppose, most interesting is that we have this two-tier dynamic happening. So there's a lot of like focus on the presidential election, but at the same time, there's a ton of local elections happening. So what we're seeing is the coalition building has to go beyond the presidential election. The different candidates have to approach local governors and local politicians to mobilize on their behalf. And on top of all of that, have to have a strong enough national platform for them to actually win the election. So you can win it quite easily if you have all the alliances in place and if you have the money as well to fund your campaign. But um, as you mentioned, it can be quite complicated to do. And we know that elections in Kenya have unfortunately in the past been associated with very serious levels of violence. Talk us through what to expect this time. What is actually happening when general elections take place on the 9th of August? What positions are being contested? And at the moment, what is your outlook for stability associated with this poll? Like you've said, there's been a lot of fear of violence because of you know history and the fact that during the at least three previous elections, there's been a lot of unrest, especially in 2007. 
And we've already seen more and more campaign rallies escalating into violence over the past few weeks. But as of now, from our assessment, we are saying that we're not expecting widespread violence. And that's partly because of the way in which the kind of political alliances have been uh, redesigned over the past few years. First is the alliance between President Uhuru Kenyatta and veteran opposition leader Raila Odinga, which means that, you know, Raila Odinga, he has uh, the capability to mobilize large protests. But at the same time, because of his alliance with, with the president, the, pres- the, the security forces are more likely to take a less a less heavy-handed approach to, to these kinds of, 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 of gatherings. So that's first. And more importantly is the fact that there's a lot of uh, international scrutiny into the elections, especially by uh, human rights organizations, human rights groups, even the, the International Criminal Court. So everyone is afraid of being associated with any militia groups. So that means that it's unlikely that there'll be coordinated violence. But you did mention that there have already been some outbreaks. There has been some violence, has there, in the campaign already? Yes, we've recorded a few incidents uh, and they're increasing more and more as the elections approach, especially in some of the the lower income areas, in some of the urban areas where we've seen, for example, a rally, a campaign rally escalating into clashes between two rival political supporters. Sometimes police um, security forces intervene, making the situation worse. So that's what we've seen mostly. And there's been reports by the authorities that some politicians are using criminal groups to kind of disrupt the rallies of, of their opponents. So that's what we've seen so far. To what extent are people actually engaged in the election? Do you expect turnout to be high? What, what's really at stake this time? I would say that it, it will vary. Generally, from my assessment, I believe that the, the turnout will reduce from from last year, sorry, from the last elections. But this will depend, for example, in the more of the rural areas, we expect the turnout to be not that less than, than in the previous elections. But in the urban areas, and especially amongst younger people as well, we are seeing more of water apathy and more perceptions that there's really no hope for the country. So yeah, overall, the, the water turnout will reduce, but not that much because in the rural areas, people are still very much involved. We've seen even turnout for rallies, organizing the rural areas there's still that perception that, you know, these people are going to advance our interests nationally and locally. Patricia, can we return for a second to the dynamic that you described between what's happening on the federal level and the local level? Tell us a little bit about two things, if you can. What's the likelihood of continuity from the incumbent administration after the election, number one? And number two, what happens to businesses? Do they get trapped between the federal and the local level? Or is one predominantly more important than the other? Whether or not the local or the national level politics is more important depends on where we're talking about. So in places like Nairobi, for example, there's been already a lot more kind of consternation, I would put it, because the governor in Nairobi was actually impeached a couple of years ago. So we've had an interim governor for a while. So it would be, I guess, nice as a resident of Nairobi to actually have an elected party, you know, in charge of affairs in the in the capital city. But in other places, honestly, your national level politician is probably more important. And that speaks to the fact that while we still have this two tiers of government, most of the resources and revenues are still directed from the central government to the local level. So it really does matter who is in charge as president, because they're the ones who can ultimately kind of influence these large projects, for example, whether or not the central government and specifically the executive, which has its own kind of pot of money, can actually redistribute that as necessary. So the the national level is still very much important. 
But as I mentioned, everyone still needs to rely on those local politicians to be able to to win the election. And probably something we should have mentioned at the outset is that to to be a president in Kenya, you have to have majority of the national vote, but also majority in at least half of the 47 counties. Being able to secure both of those means that you still need kind of that local level support as well as the national one. And to your second question on what does this actually mean for businesses? Again, it mostly depends on the central government, but again, local local governments do have the power and authority for seemingly small things that could actually have a huge impact. So things like land rates, for example, things like being able to approve certain projects, and especially when it comes to that kind of local community um, engagement between companies and communities. How much should we be expecting things to change in Kenya? How much should business be expecting the rules to change as a result of this changing of the guard and the departure of an incumbency that's limited by constitutional term limits? Not much, I guess. <laughs> Is that a good thing or a bad thing? <laughs> well, that's that's what I was going to pick out, actually. Okay. So it really does depend on who, who wins. So between the two frontrunners, Ruto on one side and Odinga on the other. Their campaign manifestos are roughly the same. They're both kind of populist-leaning and socialist, except one is definitely, Odinga that is, is definitely like, let's build on what this previous government has done. Whereas the other one, Ruto, is saying, actually, let's tear it all down and start from scratch. I would say their policy alignment is broadly similar. The overall picture I would paint is that regardless of who comes in, they're still facing exactly the same circumstances. So Kenya is in the middle of a sustained economic growth after COVID, but it's not trickling down to the ordinary person. So while we're recording things like 5 to 7% GDP growth, fuel and food pr- and prices are among the highest they have been in a very long time. So there is this gap between great headline growth figures and also what it actually means to the ordinary person. The second thing is the Kenyatta government, the outgoing government, has accumulated a a whole load of debt, public debt, external debt, in the past 10 years. And so it's estimated to reach over 70% of GDP in the coming year. So regardless of who comes into power, they are still dealing with this I guess, gap between expectation and reality on the economic side, as well as a huge external debt burden which they have to service. So while we're seeing Ruto coming in and saying, look, we're, this, is, this forms debt slavery, for example, him actually cancelling or reneging on external debt is highly unlikely because of the kind of detrimental economic impact that would have on Kenya. And so that's why I said it's going to be largely the same because the conditions that both of them are facing are are challenging and the promises that they are making to the electorate are really broadly similar even though they have like these slight differences i guess in i would say the way they're framing the problem and maybe we should put that down to propaganda machinery or just the way that people are are talking about things a little bit in the public context but on paper what they are promising to do sounds broadly quite similar actually so similar to each other and similar to outgoing President Kenyatta? Yes, with a, a socialist tint, I would say. Rose, what, what sort of issues will influence the way that people vote 
Well, I mean, you could say that there are many issues, but in theory at least, but in, in practice, what will influence the way most people vote is, you know, ethnicity and the person that they think will advance the, the interest and the interest of their ethnic group best. So that will be one of the main determinants of who to vote for. In as much as, you know, there's all these political parties, most of them are not really institutionalized. So it's more about the person who is, you know, bringing the name of that political party and, you know, because of how, you know, ethnic identity is very important. And this means that, you know, the ability of this person to, for example, advance the interests of this community will help, not only in terms of, you know, getting the, the support of politicians, but also, you know, the, the local communities. So that's the main determinant of how people will vote. But there's also growing discontent about that kind of system amongst, especially amongst young people who are more and more looking for alternative political leaders. However, most alternative political leaders don't really have that much support, not just in terms of popular support, but even in terms of resources, they've, they've struggled to campaign effectively. So even though there's a few candidates that wanted to present themselves as, a, as credible alternatives to either Ruto or, or Odinga, this hasn't really been effective. And we've even seen some of the ones that are saying that they'll be more of an alternative and they're saying that they, they are not relying on ethnicities, such as George Wajakoya. They, they appear to be in favor of Odinga, who is from the same ethnic group. There's even been some concern that he's actually just running his campaign so as to divide the votes in favor of, of, of Odinga. So that's generally what we're expecting to be the main driver of or, or determinant of voting. How interesting. So that that even trumps inflation and price rises still, does it? Even even in the context of sort of record-breaking inflation around the world, obviously impacting in Kenya as well on, on people, particularly lower income groups, ethnicity will still play a greater role than, than price rises, do you think, in, in how people choose to vote? Not necessarily. I think they're, they're interconnected. Like Patricia said, both candidates have basically the same way of dealing with the with the, 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 the challenges that people are facing, meaning that even if you look at the manifestos, it doesn't really give a clear difference. The only thing that can help you choose who will help you deal better with rising poverty and socioeconomic issues is the person that you trust the most, who tends to be the person, you know, from your ethnicity. And what about the business community, the sorts of organizations that you are advising day in and day out in Kenya? Given what you've told us about the candidates and their similarities, actually, and the degree of continuity which we expect on the policy front, how is the business community viewing the election? Is it sort of wait and see or is there one particular outcome that they would favor over another? Well, as of now, from most of the, the clients I've, I've, I've engaged with on this matter, there's more of a wait and see because a lot of them are kind of divided because they were here in, in 2013, in 2017, and they saw that the violence wasn't really that bad. But at the same time, there's that perception that this election is very much high stake because, you know, it's, it's Kenyatta's last term. There's been all this reconfiguration of the political landscape. One side where clients are very worried that things could could go wrong, but there's also that experience from, from the previous elections where they saw that things were not really that bad. So that's the general sense, clients trying to monitor the situation and be prepared in case of, in the worst case scenario, but there's not that general uh, sense of fear that you would expect. Awareness of political, country, and economic risks underpin your organization's ability to protect value and mitigate shocks. Whether you need consulting on a particular project or longer-term strategic, analytical, and forecasting resources, we can respond to your requirements face-to-face or through our online platform-based solutions. For more information, follow the link in the podcast notes. Now, back to the discussion. So the phrase wait and see is a judicious one. 
and one that we like to sort of take a bit of refuge in from time to time. But it opens the door to what I'd like to ask both of you next, and that is, I think it's projection time. And so I'm wondering, I think we've just released some new scenarios for the outcome of the Kenya election. So, Rose and Patricia, tell us a little bit about who you think is going to win. And since both of you have mentioned that that none of the current issues facing the candidates are going to magically disappear after the election, how do you rate their chances of actually gripping you know, the most the most critical issues? On the surface, we think that uh, Odinga is going to win. Yes, he was a veteran opposition leader, but now he has the backing of the state, which, as we may have alluded to in Kenya, you do need a lot of money to win an election and having access to the state and the backing of the former president, who himself is very wealthy, does give you access to these superior financial and campaign machinery resources, I would say. On top of all of that, Odinga has secured alliances with a lot of different senior politicians, especially his deputy running mate, so Martha Karua, who has a very strong track record on things like social justice. Um, as a former lawyer, she's also known as the Iron Lady in Kenya. So she's got that very kind of strict anti-corruption, social justice reputation, which is hugely beneficial for Odinga's campaign. On top of that, she's also Kikuyu. So there is some uh, continuity with President Kenyatta, who is essentially handing over the, the leadership of his very um, important ethnic community, whose interests will be taken care of under Odinga. Aside from Karua, there's also a few other senior politicians who uh, Odinga has managed to secure alliances with, including across the top five, I would say, by population ethnic groups in the country. So from that perspective, from the financial perspective, from the alliances perspective, and the fact that he has the state machinery behind him, we think that gives him a slight edge in the presidential election. It will be a very close race. In contrast to uh, Odinga, Rusha does not necessarily have all those alliances locked down, but he has a very attractive populist campaign, which is gaining a lot of attention across the country among lower income voters and among lower ranking politicians who see their political futures outside of this elite arrangement that Odinga and Kenyatta have on the other side. So he still has quite a big base of support. And because of that, we do think the election is going to be quite close. It sounds like this is a, a great election to sort of sink your teeth into. I mean, some elections, the outcome is known well in advance and they tend to be a bit of a bore. Some of them, you know, the candidates just don't really turn the electorate on fire or anything like this. Have you enjoyed or, or has it been interesting to cover these elections, to, to, to watch them, to analyze them and, and to interpret them for our clients? I mean, the short answer is yes. We haven't really talked about Ruta that much and maybe now is the time to to, to dig into that. But Ruta has this really fascinating campaign where he has termed himself as a hustler, which is a Kenyan term for, as a, you know, for an entrepreneur who's made it a self-made businessman. And, and so his campaign is entirely based on, we are the hustlers and I'm here to protect the, the interests of the hustlers. He's contrasting this with Odinga's campaign, uh, which he says are the dynasties because Odinga and Kenyatta both followed their fathers into politics. For context, Kenyatta's father was the first president of Kenya. Odinga's father was the first vice president of Kenya. 
so Ruto is like, look, I'm I'm self-made, coming from nowhere, from nothing, built myself up. Whereas these guys have just inherited their political positions. So his whole campaign is like, I'm I'm here for the people, for the common man. And I'm kind of an outsider, but not really. So I know what I'm doing. And so it's just been a really kind of fascinating way to watch because as I think we've been talking about now, Kenyan politics typically is based on ethnicity. And yet here comes this guy who's talking about the elites versus the rest of us. Patricia, what role is social media playing in that evolution? Quite a big one. And I guess just for some context, the 2013 elections were hugely controversial in Kenya because of the Cambridge Analytica scandal. The winning campaign was found to have relied on some of the consulting services. And there was a lot of um, false information and very, very slick campaigns on social media, doing the rounds to vilify other candidates and that kind of thing in 2013 and in 2017. Now, I would say there's a huge kind of uptick in usage of social media, both among the population and by political actors. But I would say the one main difference this year is I think people are a lot more aware of it. There's a lot more understanding that some of these are, you know, campaign ads and uh, many social media companies have actually put in place, you know, protections to show that this is a paid for advert, for example, which wasn't very clear before. The spread of misinformation is obviously a huge issue here. But I will highlight that again, in Kenya, most social media usage is still very urban based. So while we are talking about potential for, you know, manipulating public opinions and that kind of thing, we're talking about this primarily affecting urban populations who are maybe 20, 25% of the population. So it's it's a big deal, but we, you know, mon- this traditional media, things like local language radio are probably where most of the, the kind of campaigning and concerns around campaigning are more likely to emerge. So for businesses that are watching the election closely, what are you recommending that they monitor in particular? Businesses should monitor, especially any violence. What should be most of concern for businesses is to monitor any unrest that, for example, started out as just political unrest and has escalated into ethnic violence. That would be one of the major things for, for businesses to monitor because it would indicate whether or not the likelihood of, you know, large-scale ethnic violence is is increasing or not. So that's one of the things to, to monitor. But also as the polls approach, they should really uh, monitor closely the, the, the process, the, the electoral procedures. For example, any judicial action aimed at, for example, changing uh, materially how the, the elections are supposed to take place or trying to, for example, postpone the elections and things like that, because that would trigger a lot of backlash and potentially violence. So that's something to, to monitor. And then, you know, during the election or after the election, they should closely monitor any attempts to, for example, invalidate the, the results of the elections. Any judicial case into that should be closely monitored. Rose, let's assume that that we are now past the elections. And and having just mentioned, you know, challenges, let's assume that that those are over if they happen. Um, how long does the honeymoon period last between Odinga and the electorate if we're forecasting an Odinga victory? And 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 how do you rate his chances of actually, you know, getting to grips with what's coming? Well, I think Odinga is actually he's a he's, a, he's an experienced politician, so I, I'm not really doubting his ability. I'm just doubting that the political landscape and whether it would be enabling for him, especially because of his 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 agreement with, with Kenyatta, which would mean that 
he'll have to be kind of balancing the interests of his own allies and the interests of, of Kenyatta and his allies, which might mean that he's not able to address some of the issues in a more comprehensive manner. So that's one of the, the, the things that I think he, he'll face a great challenge with, especially when it comes to the calls for, for constitutional reforms, which him and, and Kenyatta started a few years ago, and they were, they were suspended by the court. But it's likely that they'll revive them again in the likely event that, that, that Odinga wins. So that will be, again, another point for him, again, to kind of balance the backlash that he's going to get for that from, from some communities, from some civil society groups, and the interests of, of his allies, Kenyatta, and, and so forth. So yeah, that would, that would be really difficult for him to navigate. Beyond the immediate region, is Kenya being very much buffeted by global geopolitical trends and, and movements? I think the answer is yes. Kenya came out quite strongly in the UN Security Council when the issues between Russia and Ukraine started and gave a very empowering speech that was soon hushed up by the rest of the government who did not really appreciate being brought brought out into the limelight over such a huge global issue such as the conflict in Ukraine. And I think that really speaks to, to Kenya's attempt to be non-aligned. And I don't think it's Kenya specifically. It's a lot of African countries who do not want to be drawn into kind of global geopolitical debates, especially around the crisis in Ukraine. Somewhat shielded by the nature of its trading relationship and not being overly reliant on any particular commodities from the price rises that we're seeing and the sort of turbulence on the commodity market globally as well. Kind of. I would say unlike North Africa, for example, Kenya does not import masses of wheat from Ukraine or Russia. So the staple here being maize. Um, so even if the price of bread goes up, people shift to traditional starches. So there's not so much concern around you know wheat prices. What has been hugely detrimental has been rising oil prices, which has a you know, knock-on effect on fuel prices, which in Kenya is subsidized. So the government is having to pay more to keep prices at a certain level. And then the one that we all did not realize was fertilizer, which again is, is very expensive in Kenya now and is now being subsidized by the government. So yet another financial hit. More evidence that the Ukraine conflict really is touching so many different parts of the world and perhaps will play an indirect role in this forthcoming election in, in Kenya in August, which we have really, really enjoyed learning more about from both you, Patricia, and you, Rose, in this discussion. Thank you. Thanks, Claudine. Thanks, Chuck. Thank you for having us. It's been a pleasure, guys. Thanks to both of you. That's all for this episode of The Global Insight. Stay tuned with new episodes of The Global Insight every other week by subscribing wherever you listen to your podcasts. And be sure to check out our other podcasts as well, such as Legal and Compliance Insights, a monthly podcast that gives you a window onto the legal and compliance issues our experts are facing around the world. You can follow all of our analysis and find out how we're helping build secure, compliant, and resilient businesses by visiting controlrisks.com. The Global Insight is produced by Sam Tornio and Vicky Bufton. For me, thanks for listening and bye for now. And... Goodbye from me.